is the story of a woman who changed America, the way we eat, the kinds of people we see on television, and opportunities for women in the kitchen and beyond. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. You just heard Betsy West talking about her new film with Julie Cohen. We previously spoke with Betsy and Julie. We give you a rundown of the resume there. Please go listen to that episode about my name is Polly Murray, if you want to learn more about them. But now, my discussion with Betsy and Julie about Julia. Julie Cohen, Betsy West, welcome back to Top Docs. Great to Thank be here. Thank you so much. We had Julie and Betsy on to talk about their wonderful film, My Name is Polly Murray. Please listen to that show and please watch that documentary. It's just a wonderful educational tour de force. Congratulations to you as well on this lovely and just I'll say pleasantly educational film. I think I could say that. You know, I wish all the PBS of my youth had been this well presented. <laughs> Do you each have a personal favorite recipe from Julia Child? And maybe I'll start with Julie this time. There are many, but you got to go with simplicity. Julia Child salad missoise, which is shown, spoiler alert, it is the end of our, it's the climax of our film, is so spectacular in every way like it's so beautiful and so fresh but it's easy which is not true of a lot of joy child recipes but it is delicious i've always loved salad missoise but seeing it filmed for our movie just had a renaissance of interest for me personally and my husband in uh, salad missoise so i'm cooking that all the time and arguably a recipe that she popularized in america so wonderful choice yeah betsy I'm also a Salad Niçoise fan, and especially the way she arranged it. She had a particular design for the Salad Niçoise, so try to do that. But I will move on to something that's really a great meal during these dark, cold January days here in New York, which is beef bourguignon. It's such a classic, and the way Julia does it, it is rich and yummy and surprising and makes great leftovers. And arguably a structuring element to this film. So let's come back yes. to that. Yes. Uh, so let's talk about the opening of the film. We love to talk about openings. They often set the tone. Also here, I think you introduce us a little bit to some of the techniques of the film. So in the opening, I'll just describe it a little bit. We see Julia. We hear that voice, that distinctive voice that you'll never forget. She's at the chopping block. As it were, she has six chickens of different size and hue lined up in front of her. She's joking around, of course, a little pinch of humor as she's teaching you traditional French technique. We see her working. And then if we're paying attention, we start to notice some of the angles change and the, some of the lighting gets a little bit more contemporary. Uh, and it gets done on us, wait a minute, we're actually seeing someone else make this meal. Can you talk about what you're doing there in that scene? We wanted to, first of all, uh, like when your subject's Julia Child, you want to get Julia Child on the screen right away. She's the magic of this film. She's why we made the film. So seeing like a straight significant shot of Julia doing the much beloved Chicken Sisters episode would definitely seem like a way to start. And yet pretty quickly thereafter, we wanted to start to mix in some modern elements throughout the film. There's food cinematography that we're extremely proud of, and we wanted to very directly 
have our cinematographers match what was done on the French chef. So actually the modern food cinematography was the very last thing we shot in the film. So we really shot it to match the scenes. And yes, we're not trying to make you think you're seeing PBS in the 1960s because God bless Julia Child and her whole uh, production crew, some of which are on our film, but like, cinematography today and you know what they were able to do in the 60s we knew we could take those same recipes and just make them more beautiful i think our editor carla gutierrez did an amazing job integrating the two the archive with the modern footage and cutting back and forth in a really seamless way the other thing we wanted to do at the beginning of the film was to establish that Julia Child really did rock our world. <laughs> she was revolutionary. So we pulled in some Jimi Hendrix singing fire to shake you up a little bit and just to indicate what Julia accomplished and how radical it really was from this conservative looking middle-aged woman who did have such an impact. So you worked out previously at RBG. My name is Polly Murray. These are films that are very creative in a way they mix archival and more current talking heads and maybe a little bit of observational film. But this is like getting into recreation. I assume this is the first time you had a food stylist in your credits. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. Truthfully, that's part of that was one of the reasons we decided to make this film is we loved the idea of delving into food as a subject matter and just kind of the technical challenge of just exactly how delicious, how drolly creating, and in some cases, how sexy could we make food with the huge help and uh, great eyes of our primary cinematographer, Claudia Rashke, who also did RBG and My Name is Polly, but also a French cinematographer named Nanda Bredelard, who specializes in really impressionistic shooting, particularly of food, so impressionistic that you're not always even sure you're what you're looking at. And we thought trying to marry these di two different kinds of food cinematography would be a way that would just add to really the, the pleasure center part of our movie. We'll come back to talk a little bit more about some of those elements, because I think you continue to use them in really creative ways. But from the opening, you jump to Julia kind of at her cultural apogee. She's appearing on magazine covers. She's appearing on Johnny Carson. You talk immediately about how she changed food starting in the 60s. Now, I remember Julia as an icon. I remember her from PBS. I remember doing impersonations of her or maybe a Dan Aykroyd doing an impersonation of her. And with Carl Sagan, she, they were these kind of famous PBS people. That's hard to imagine today in the same way. But we were still stuck in TV dinners and canned soup and jello salad. Growing up, for you personally, did this wave hit your families, your households? Certainly in my household, it was TV dinners and uh, mushroom soup casserole and jello salads were the norm. It really wasn't until I was a young woman myself and in a kitchen that I became more aware of Julia Child and also the influence that Julia just had in general on helping us get better ingredients and purchase a garlic press and buy asparagus and also just try out things. I personally did a lot of Chinese food cooking in the early 70s, which was something that I think Julia also helped spark. So that's personally how I related to Julia and understanding how she helped transform opportunities for people to cook good food. 
I would say my family was very much uh, hit by the crashing Julia Child wave in the 60s and then into the 70s. The whole idea that French food was this cool, glamorous thing and that you might even one day want to go to France. I think certainly for a lot of suburban households, which uh, was what I grew up in, definitely those conceptions were all changed by the existence of, of Julia Child. And chocolate mousse was considered like the apogee of everything. Have you tried it? Do you know what it is? And it's really because of Julia Child that we all became obsessed. I mean, restaurants started having it. My mom didn't know how to cook it, but some of my friends' parents' moms could make chocolate mousse. And that, that was like a big dividing line. In my mind, that was like the ultimate in sophistication and coolness was like someone who could make a good chocolate mousse. And that's really because Julia Child had taught them. Glad to hear that. As a kid, I did make chocolate mousse for my classmates one time. You have some great interviews with chefs and other culinary experts. You know, sometimes in docs, if you bounce around amongst many talking heads, it might seem scattered, even confusing, but you do something really smart, I think. You start with Julia making one of her classic beef bourguignon. We see some beef in a pan. Then as we see ingredients being chopped, we then first hear and then see Jose Andres and then Ina Garten, Marcus Samuelson. And the whole time we see the stew progressing and it culminates in these final beautiful shots of the finished beef bourguignon. This is wonderful, right? Because it helps hold it all together. And I felt there was an analogy being made here between that beautiful preparation of the stew and your own chopping and slicing and mixing and ultimately cooking up this very tasty stew of a show. Am I onto something here? <laughs> I think you are onto something. We did have a lot of fun making this film and editing together these incredible dishes. And we also were blown away by the influence that Julia had on chefs like Ina Garten and Jose Andres and Marcus Samuelson and their almost philosophical perspective on food and the meaning of food and the meaning of preparing a meal for your family and loved ones and then enjoying it together around a table and just how important that is, which is something that Julia really emphasized. She loved to cook for her husband. She loved to entertain for her friends. And it's like a whole way of life. That sequence that you talk about was setting the table for this important idea that Julia was able to bring to all of us. We really wanted those kind of interstitial segments in between the straight Julia biography, where we're talking in bigger, broader terms and our chefs are talking in bigger, broader terms about the meaning of food to feel a little bit dreamlike, like the food shooting is certainly a lot of that is dreamlike with steam wafting over things. And it's all, often the music is pretty dreamy. Certainly Carla often edited it in a dreamy sort of way because the way that someone like a Marcus Samuelson talks about food, it just feels like he's talking to, like, about something much, much bigger. You want to taste who I am? Like, taste this. Like, <laughs> Yeah. We love particularly the dissolve from the steamy beef, the dissolve into the archive of Julia's early growing up in California, the way that Carla found those connections in the footage to take you from one scene to the other, we thought was particularly effective. We'll probably return to Beef Burgundy later because it does pop up a couple <laughs> more times in the course of the film, but let's jump to her life. 
Raised in a well-off Pasadena family, educated at Smith, Julia eventually rejected this life that was laid out for her. She turns down the marriage to the scion of the LA Times, a very prominent family in Los Angeles, and sought service and adventure. Do you have a sense of where this rare independent spirit came from? I want to say that maybe it wasn't so rare in that a lot of women were yearning for something more. And Julia and other women during the late 1930s and the early 40s found that opportunity in volunteering for the war effort. Julie was looking for something and suddenly she thought, hey, my country needs me. And when they said, would you like to go to the Far East? She raised her hand immediately. She was adventuresome. For a lot of those women after the war, it was back to uh, housewifely duties. Luckily for Julia, she had the good fortune to meet Paul Child and to embark on a marriage in where they were posted in France. And that opened up a whole world for her. As you noted, she did meet Paul in Ceylon or Sri Lanka. And despite some initial differences, they became a couple. That Paul, You note that Paul didn't go to college, but he was a polymath, just a master of many things. We know a little bit that he has a family back in the States. We see these letters to his brother. But unlike Julia, you don't really explore his background. I just wondered about that decision. With biographies where people have lived such long and full lives, we've found like the way to make it work best as a story arc is to go pretty narrow. We wanted Julia to remain very much the focus of our story. Paul is a main character, but he's really the secondary character. Like the main thing that brings him in is his love for Julia. The way that things about his career impacted where Julia happened to be living and her early interest in food, all of that. And then ultimately how he became the hugely influential second fiddle, but second fiddle nonetheless to kind of the shooting star that was Julia Child. And the fact that he was willing to play that role is something that we love about this story. I mean, if people have seen our other movies, they know that like feminist love stories is kind of like our thing, our jam. And that again, that was something that really made us gravitate towards this story is that it was just this beautiful feminist love story with our romantic hero, unlike RBG's husband, Marty, who would by all accounts was the most lovable guy in the world. Paul Child was a little bit bristly sometimes, but not with her. When they were together, there was just like so much warmth and love and everyone around her could feel that. Even people that maybe weren't crazy about him personally really understood how supportive and wonderful he was as a husband to Julia. After the war ends, they travel through Asia. This was a point that my wife, she's read the memoir, she's seen the movies, you know, she hadn't heard about this. She suggests that might have had some impact on her sense of food. Yeah, absolutely. They were posted actually in China during the war. Paul wasn't content to just eat the mess food that the other officers were going to be eating. He wanted to go out into China and to explore that cuisine. And that I think was the first time that Julia had been exposed to that kind of fresh and original cooking. So it was the spark. And then of course, when she went to France and ate the legendary Saumonier, that was really when her interest in food took off. You mentioned, so they go to France, Paul's posted to France, they're in Provence, and then they visit Paris and they go around the country. And eventually she really gets to love French food. She ends up in a GI program at Le Cordon Bleu, which is just 
in and of itself is hilarious. It's almost like a yeah. historical farce. I can imagine Frazier stepping into yeah. that kind of. It's <laughs> a good idea. <laughs> I think it'd be wonderful. Can you tell us what reception she met there? Look, a woman going into any kind of professional or semi-professional situation in 1949, which is when this was, was not going to be met with a warm welcome and a bear hug. The sort of snooty, uptight, old school French chef who was teaching thought when he saw a woman come into the class, he's thinking housewife, oh, she's a dilettante, she's an amateur, she should go to the, there was actually another course for housewives around the corner, and Julius, no, she wanted to be in the professional class. She just wasn't taken seriously until she had the opportunity. She was in the course and she started to perform and she started to perform so well that she was able to earn quite a great deal of respect and actually ended up being a lifelong friend with her teacher there. You cover the romance of Paul and Julia beautifully and you do so through food as it were. So we have a wonderful sequence where we see Paul's letters to his brother. He's talking about Julia's culinary talents, but there's some implications. He may be talking about a broader themes. The shots during this creation of this, what is being made here? Looks a like pear a, tart. It is a tart. It is a pear tart. A pear tart. A yes. pear tart. And the shots are extremely sensual. I wouldn't say extremely. Let me pull that back. They're sensual, appropriately sensual. And eventually, as the scene progresses, you spell out the underlying themes a little more explicitly, use the code of the three Fs. There's almost a little bit of a strip tease here. And I wonder about how you managed to handle this. I think it's a wonderful scene and you managed to handle it without falling too far into comedy on one side or prurience on the other. It's a balance. How did you find that balance? It's very clear that Julia and Paul did have a great sex life. <laughs> they had a sensual marriage. And certainly in those early days in France, when Paul was coming home for his two-hour lunch, which Julia was preparing for her. This was a wonderful example of their relationship. And we wanted to find a food that could really symbolize that. And our food stylist, Susan Spungen, when we consulted with her, like, what should Julia and Paul be eating? What should we be preparing as we're talking about this? It was Susan's idea that the pear tart was particularly appropriate because it has so many steps and there's just the wonderful rolling out of the dough and then the bubbling of the syrup and the final plopping of the uh, whipped cream on top. So it seemed maybe not so subtle way to illustrate this. The thing that we were a little surprised about was in the archive at Harvard of the Julia Child's archive where all of Paul's photographs reside, and he was an extremely accomplished photographer, we found all of these loving pictures of Julia, including a nude, a very, we thought, tasteful nude shot of Julia in silhouette. And that seemed to be pretty specific and pretty appropriate, and I think helped us walk the line. It, it turns out that you're very lucky that Paul, her husband, turns out not among his many skills is he's an amazing photographer. Yeah. He's like a world-class yeah. photographer. It's, yeah. it's really shocking. Really helpful, I'm sure, for you. Okay, so in France, as she gets more into food, she's brought in to work on a book with Simca. They worked for many years, faced some rejection along the way, but eventually they launched this cookbook after a dozen years, I think. It was revolutionary, not only its subject matter for the American audience, but in the way it was created in the almost scientific background behind it and in the way the recipes were laid out and presented. Julia Child became most famous in the U.S. for her PBS show, The French Chef. But this cookbook 
Mastering the art of French cooking it was really hugely innovative. It was and is a masterpiece. We were surprised by when we started to approach modern chefs with the thought of bringing some of them in for perspective, seeing the huge reverence people. I kind of thought, oh, they're going to think she's passe. This book is no good anymore. But it's still really appreciated as being the book that laid out, not only for Americans, but like for non-French people, what French cooking is really all about. And certainly, although, as we point out in the film, Julia really didn't become a celebrity in France the way she was here in the States, certainly she's bringing this very French idea of how food connects to the other parts of life. And I think we were glad that we were able to track down and interview some of the characters, in some cases, close friends of, of Julia's, who could really make that connection and help our audiences understand how food fits in with the rest of life, including sensuality to the friends, like Danielle Delpush, the amazing octogenarian, former personal chef for Francois Mitterrand, who was so good at bringing to life, you know, sexism in French kitchens many decades ago, having to ward off guys who told her like, oh, women can't cook because the utensils are too heavy for them, but also gave us such a great perspective on how the French see the connection between food and the rest of life. As you noted, she had landed on public television. Paul had left the service. They had settled in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And again, it was through her promotion of the book, right? She was doing book tours and she called WGBH and wants to get on a show comically called I've Been Reading with a hand-lettered uh, title card. That and You saw some of the standard shows of that era. I wasn't around quite yet then, but I remember some of this still lingering a uh, decade later even. She goes on the show and she gets a hot plate and she does a demo, which is a, at that time just a breakthrough. Can you talk about her influence on public television? Huge influence on public television as it was so fun to find the archive of those nerdy shows that were just the staple of public television in those days. As a very young child living within the greater WGBH viewing area, I actually remember some of those pointy-headed professors who were giving these boring lectures. And here comes Julia. She does the first demo ever, probably one of the first demos ever with her incredible omelet, which kind of blows away the host and also captures the imagination of the audience. So this little station starts to get phone calls from people saying, who is that woman? Can we see some more of her? You know, it's just such a happy accident that led to GBH taking a chance on doing The French Chef. One of the fun parts of the film, I think, was for us taking you behind the scenes of how that show was made. And luckily, the producer, Russ Marash, and, and his wife was a, a chef, became a chef, and stage manager, Alex Pyrie, are still around to bring that to life of what a kind of makeshift operation it was and you know how Julia had to pull it all together through just the force of her personality how engaging she was, how well-prepared she was, and how the audience just became mesmerized. Even if they weren't cooking what Julia was doing, they were watching what Julia was doing, talking about it. She just became the first public television superstar, really, before, before Mr. Rogers, before a lot of the PBS icons, there was Julia. On the other side, 
I'm struck by the luck of Julia and Paul's relocation to Cambridge. WGBH was one of the very few PBS stations doing anything interesting at the time, station WNWT in New York, and, and probably maybe, you know, Washington, maybe a little San Francisco. But if they had landed somewhere else, I wonder about that. And it really dawned on me, despite being such a force of nature, so many things that happened in her life. Had she not married Paul? Had they not been drawn to France? Had they not come back from France? Had they not settled in the Boston area? Like, would she have become Julia Child? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think as a human being, like those around her would have always been blown away by her charisma and all of the things that made her really unique. But no, Julia becoming a superstar was sort of weird, unlikely, specific, and could easily not have happened in a yeah. million different ways. It was really because of living in France that she happened to discover a love of food and cooking that became a lifelong passion. She was the type to throw herself into something when she was able to throw herself into something. She raised the point, and I think it's in her generation, this isn't that unfair that had she been able to have children, she might have chosen a different path. She and Paul tried and were unable to have kids and that left her with a certain hunger to, to throw herself into another area. Also, let's not forget some financial fortune coming from a wealthy enough family that she didn't have to be out or earning money, like showing up on that I've been reading show. Look, they described the phones lighting up when she called in, but I believe the number was 27 people called. It wasn't like, you know, 10,000. Like it was just that 27 people had never called WGBH before. So I think there was a lot of interesting happenstance that led to the Julia Child phenomenon. At the time, the depiction of women on television, well, it's the time of I Dream of Jeannie, but uh, Laurie Petrie and also Elizabeth Montgomery on Bewitched. Can you just talk about how she seemed so different? I think... To have a woman, first of all, she was middle-aged, 50 years old when she first went on television, or maybe 51, and she was really tall and loud and gawky. You just didn't have women of her age, her stature on television, and also teaching people something, telling them what to do. Women were often the subject of jokes. They didn't have the kind of confident authority that Julia had, that people were really wanting to hear from her, to learn how to do something. And that was extremely unusual in those days. When I look at your work, RBG, my name is Polly Murray, and this film, I do see one possible connection between all of them is I won't say women because with Polly Murray, I think genders to, to be discussed but people who didn't give up at 50. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. People whose good career, RBG and, and Julie had 40 year careers after they turned 50. Is that, do you think that's a theme of your work? It is a theme and I think it's part of what attracts us to these stories. There are so many, if you want to look at sort of the ways that we simplify and discriminate, there's so many different axes in which that happens, particularly to people who are um, women or identified as women. But, you know, age, like the thought that there's been a sense, particularly women who were sort of raised up on seeing them on a big screen, the thought is that like women aren't that interesting after they turn about 37, I'll say. Betsy and I, not saying our ages, but we are beyond 37, are really drawn to stories of women whose greatest blossoming is in their fifth, fifth sixth, seventh, eighth decade. People get interestinger as, as yeah. time goes on. 
through their experience, through building more into who they can become. Certainly that's applied to everyone whose stories that we've chosen to, to tell thus far. And it's, boy, is it true of Julia. Even as a man, as a, you know, a cis man, I, I still am inspired by this. As somebody who's coming to something a little bit later in life, I have to say I'm truly inspired by all your work, uh, and especially this film. Let me ask about something a little bit different, making mistakes. I think this is really something interesting about Julia Childs. It may seem a little trivial, but her attitude towards mistakes and how you recover from mistakes. I think we think of French cuisine as being relentlessly precise in its technique, but Julia embraced error and dealing with the realities of failure. Julia worked really hard to become an expert cook, as we show in the film. She worked for over a decade, and she had a kind of confidence about her so that when she was on television at first and she made a mistake, she didn't freak out. You know, she actually went to the next step and realized, hey, everybody makes mistakes. And here's an opportunity for me to help people recover from a mistake. That was basically her attitude, which I think stemmed from the confidence of an extremely expert person who was also older and was able to just kind of push through. I mean, one of the, it's not in the film, but I just love Julia's advice, even for serving a meal. After you've worked really hard in the kitchen and maybe things didn't come out exactly the way you wanted and maybe the cake has fallen a little flat or it isn't exactly, but you're gonna serve it to your friends and family and just don't apologize. You know, to just put it out there. You worked really hard. You love them. You've done it for them and just move on. She has just a wonderful attitude about success and what success really means. And a lot of times it has to do with the effort that you put into it, not necessarily always the result. My wife talks about not apologizing. This is what's for dinner. We had three teenage sons, by the way. Uh, so this is what's for dinner. Here you go. Okay. I want to talk a bit about something a little trickier. When you depict historical figures, something that is inevitable is that they're creatures of their time. Can we start with talking about what I would characterize and tell me if you disagree, Julia's complicated relationship with feminism. Pressed by an interviewer, she says being married to a nice man and having a nice home is key to being a successful woman. I may not have got that exactly right, but I think that's the sentiment. We actually found that part of Julia's story really fun and fascinating. I don't think we ever thought about, oh, let's pretend that Julia always said she was a feminist. Like the fact that she felt seemingly almost necessary to distance herself from, and feminism wasn't even the word, you know, women's lib, which was uh, the word of the 70s that we actually remember. As soon as the reporter is asking about that, she's getting a little defensive. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm a working woman, but I cook and serve meals for my husband and aren't I a nice lady. The truth is everything about what feminism means from standing up for yourself to accomplishing something proudly and being a role model to other women and even advocating for the women who come after you as Julia Child did. That's like core feminism. And yet she didn't want to associate herself with feminism or women's lib, but that's because women's lib has had such a bad rap. If you're a woman's liber in the 70s, and this could still get said today about feminists, oh, you're a man hater, you have no sense of humor, you're unattractive. There's so much vitriol that's attached to those labels that sometimes women want to step away from them. But that doesn't mean that Julia wasn't really a feminist. And even if she's not going to claim the title for herself, we, uh, we go for it. <laughs>
she even though was deeply involved in getting more women into professional kitchens. Absolutely. Yeah. Her colleagues talk about how whenever she went to a restaurant, she always went back into thank the chef afterward. And she would always look around like, where are the women? She was pushing for women to get involved and opening up opportunities for women on television as she was and in other parts of the culinary world to run restaurants, to be the top chef. She supported women. You talk about her relationship with Planned Parenthood, which may be a surprise to a lot of people. It was a surprise to us. We did not know. She definitely believed in reproductive rights, which was not uncommon for, I think, for a woman of uh, Julia's background to support Planned Parenthood. And yet it was not common for many of Julia's fans. Planned Parenthood, especially in the 80s, became very controversial. And so it's one thing for her to quietly write some checks to Planned Parenthood and support it. It's another thing for her to really put herself out there, which she did in doing benefits for Planned Parenthood to the point that she actually was picketed in several instances, her fans who were not happy with what she was doing. But if Julia had any PR or marketing advisors who were telling her, don't do this, she was ignoring them because she thought that reproductive rights were really important. And she was really one of the first celebrities. You know, we can think now about celebrities being involved in political causes, but that really was not the case back in the 1980s. Cecile Richards of Planned Parenthood tells us that she was one of the first kind of non-medically related celebrity to put her name out there for Planned Parenthood. And we also talk about her evolving views on LGBTQ issues. That was a story arc for us that seems like really interesting to go into because although our portrait of Julia is certainly loving, this was a person who was quite imperfect and we didn't want to portray her in an unrealistic way. Julia started out just being homophobic. A number of her friends mentioned that to us in interviews, even actually family members, that she had been disparaging to gays, even while working in a world where a lot of professional chefs and a lot of kitchens, there were plenty of gay guys, including her close friend, James Beard. But she was not enlightened on gay rights. And even to the f funny point like where she actually has this extreme, aside from Beard, she has this extremely close friend, her lawyer, Bob Johnson, who was a, not openly, but all their friends, except for Julia, apparently seemed to understand that this guy was gay. She didn't want to hear it, didn't want to talk about it. And then when Bob Johnson became ill with AIDS, Julia just really thought things through and changed not only by becoming very supportive of her sick friend, but then after his death, that just pushed her to speak out for AIDS research. You know, that part's in the film, we always feel the need, especially when we've got young audiences to explain, like the, the footage that we found of her at an AIDS benefit was in 1988. I don't know if you were around in 1988, there were not a lot of people speaking. It was really bold of her to be very publicly speaking out in support of people with AIDS in that year. It just took a lot of people a long time to break past the stigma and shame and speak out about that. But when Julia set her mind to something, she was going to do it, as anyone who knew her explained to us. And so it sort of became from like this ugly story to a pretty beautiful story. So Julia, in the French matter, had long emphasized technique, 
demystified it, right? Showed that it's not just something you learn in cooking school. You could learn it at home with her. You didn't need to go to the Parisian markets. You could go to American supermarkets. Later in her career, probably partially as a result of her success, cooking enthusiasts started to emphasize the importance of fresh ingredients. Alice Waters is not mentioned in the film, but she certainly came to mind. Uh, fresh ingredients. Can you discuss how she dealt with this challenge? The chef and food writer Ruth Reichel talks about how Julia at first was a little defensive about Nouvelle Cuisine. And we found that clip where she's talking about the crunchily underdone vegetables, <laughs> complaining about that. But she came around to new ways of cooking. And I think her initial defensiveness evolved into an appreciation for the kind of California cooking style. After Paul died, she moved to Santa Barbara and became very involved also with the beginning American wine industry. Paul had been a kind of French wine snob, but then they really did come to appreciate Paul in his later days and Julia, American wine. And Julia was part of organizations of chefs and starting a culinary school, really encouraging the next generations of cooks who weren't exactly following in her tradition, but had her basics and her fundamentals underneath them, and then were becoming creative and doing different kinds of cooking. Just a little side note, I want to talk about a visual element of the movie, which is in the background, we see the pegboards and every scene. <laughs> I live in a house where parts of the kitchen haven't been remodeled since the 60s. Sure enough, there's a pegboard and I'm told <laughs> the influence there is Julie Child's influence. And then at the end, you even show the very special pegboard where Paul has stenciled each pan to know where it goes. I did not know about the, I mean, once I thought about it, remembered having seen it, but I, but, but definitely was doing the research for the film that we became aware of the pegboard. We should say that in our cooking sequences in the film, which the spectacular food stylist Susan Spungen not only helped us conceive what recipes were going to go with what scenes, but actually did the cooking and you can actually see her hands. Our producer, Holly Siegel, brought in a production design team to recreate Julia's kitchen so that we could do cooking in the kitchen. The, the real kitchen itself is now housed at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., but I promise you they will not allow you to do live. They wouldn't even let us film it except we would have to film behind plexiglass. So we understood that wasn't going to be an option. So we basically rebuilt our own version of Julia's kitchen and then did the cooking of authentic Julia recipes. And our team went to some trouble to source like every pot and pan. They're buying them on eBay. There was a while before COVID where our office was like stacked up with all these copper skillets. Towards the end of uh, her career, PBS did not air her new program all across the country. You know, I think that was actually something that was going on. I think PBS sort of was beginning to like encourage local stations to make their own programming choices. But generally, PBS seemed to be moving away from her. She quit. She went to work for Good Morning America. Can you just talk about that portion of her career? If you think about it, she's in her 70s. And as you said, she did a program and yet suddenly it's not on the nationwide schedule. It's not in New York City. And this really pissed her off. She felt that they were kind of dissing her. Perhaps they were looking for a new flavor. They felt she was getting too old, whatever. But instead of just retiring, which she certainly was at an age where she could have retired, she said, 
screw you. I'm not going to take seconds here. I'm going to do something else. And so it was uh, Julia who decided to go to Good Morning America and then really reinvented herself in a way and was discovered by so many more people. Instead of doing a half an hour, she had to cook everything in about three minutes. And yet she reached so many more people in the commercial audience and just expanded her influence to the point that she was being satirized on Saturday Night Live. She became an even bigger icon. Work was super important to Julia. She found so much meaning from doing what she did. And she really kept at it until she couldn't any longer. She was writing her autobiography and working on a show with Jacques Pepin in her late 80s. Towards the end, Beef Bourguignon makes a final appearance. It appears early on. We show this incredible, beautifully stylized Beef Bourguignon. In the middle, there's one that I think looks, uh, cinematography is still nice, but it's the regular people learn that they could do this stuff on their own. So you sort of pull back the cinematography a little bit, it feels. And the final one is in black and white. It's almost like we're going back in time. You say this is one of the first shows she recorded in 1964. And it probably played for the next half century somewhere, someday on PBS stations. Why did you use that as the structure of the film? And why did you end on that? We had a lot of fun and took it really as a challenge to do everything we could to make the food, the Julia recipes look magnificent. In the end, we wanted to just bring it back to Julia Child herself, not only in the French Chef, but on the first, I think, still recorded and existing French Chef episode, where you see that she's the center of everything. And I actually think her Bouffe Bourguignon particularly doesn't look so good in black and white. Like she's just quartering that little mushroom. You've seen how beautiful it can look. And some of our earlier versions of the Bouffe Bourguignon are not only the, the Sony Venice we use that without lens to make it look like extremely close up. Also, we use the Phantom to give it some slow bow. We, we did like every effect you could do. I think we did anything you could do with Bouffe Bourguignon. But in the end, this film, that's a lot of flash and sizzle and it's amazing. But in the end, the central character and the most beautiful thing of all is just plain old Julia, even in black and white. And I'll say that Russ Marash gave us a killer soundbite to end our film. We don't do narration in our films generally. We are relying on either whether or not it's verite natural sound or it's archive or it's interviews, we're relying on that sound. And that I remember when we were going through that interview, it was so moving the way he said it, the enduring influence of Julia, that it seemed like a great ending. Congratulations on this film. It's a true delight, as I hope that our listeners have grasped. Your film may be making mimics and expands and really deepens the subject matter powerfully. Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate uh, your insight, no. really. <laughs> Thank I you. Say, all I can say is right now I am starving. So. <laughs> <laughs>